0: Welcome to Health Setterer's podcast. Harm reduction approaches help lessen the impact of negative health outcomes as a result of the life choices people make. An important element of effective harm reduction strategies is the consideration of why people might make certain choices that affect their health and well-being. One popular example of applied harm reduction is the push for smokers to instead use nicotine patches. In this example, cigarette smokers are provided the nicotine that cigarettes offer, but they ingest it in a much safer fashion that doesn't directly impact their lungs. On this podcast, registered nurse Diana Mason hosts Dr. Justine Waldman, medical director of Reach Medical, a nonprofit harm reduction organization based in Ithaca, New York, working to help people with substance use disorders and addictions. This podcast first aired on HealthCetera and the Catskills on WIOX Radio on April 21st,
1: 2021. Well, I'm co-chair of the Catskills Addiction Coalition with my colleague, Julia Reichel. We are working with REACH Medical on a federal grant that REACH was awarded for Preventing addiction and improving treatment and recovery services in the the uh, sort of in the whole region this whole region of upstate New York, Dr. Justine Waldman is the medical director of Reach and is here to talk with us about harm reducti- reduction and other issues related to substance use disorder and Justine, uh, uh, dr Justine Waldman I, I want to thank you for coming on today and just say that. Yeah, when I opened my program I said that as far as I was concerned Reach Medical was pretty much a gold standard in providing services and its approach to uh, trying to do something about the issue of substance use. So welcome to Health Center in the Catskills. Thank you so much. Great. So your program is grounded in a harm reduction approach and we've talked about that harm reduction before on Health Center in the Catskills, but. I feel like we need to keep revisiting it so people can really deeply understand what harm reduction is and why it really matters. So talk to us about how you explain harm reduction to people and what it looks like at REACH. So I guess it's it's helpful for me to think about
2: how I was exposed to harm reduction um, or maybe think back to that. I I think um, I was exposed to harm reduction um, through a program in Ithaca that was the first um, named the Municipal Drug Policy and um, Committee, which was looking at decreasing the harms caused by drugs in our community. And I sat on the harm reduction committee and I probably spent about a month there, probably longer maybe trying to figure out what harm reduction meant. Um, There's some pretty big um, or easy definitions that can be found from the Harm Reduction Coalition, which is a national organization. Um, But the key thing is that people have their own will and their own rights, and you're looking to meet people where they are with decisions that they're making about their own health and where their life stands. Um, And you're... As a provider or as an advocate or as someone working with that person, you're recognizing where that person is at, what they're willing and also potentially able to do, and working with the person to um, within those guidelines to sort of decide how do I keep this person safe and or – how do I make movements towards maybe less use or um, another way moving forward? So the sort of examples I might use is um, harm reduction. Most of the one of the easiest ways to look at harm reduction is um, is that we give out condoms to teenagers. That's harm reduction. We know that they're gonna that teenagers and others are going to engage in sexual activity and saying, no, we know doesn't work, abstinence doesn't necessarily work, but by offering condoms, you're often having an opportunity to engage with what risks people are taking on and um, decreasing that risk by offering condoms. I think harm reduction also goes further to say things, or in my mind, to, to think about things like, um, well, my patient should be taking their insulin Um, and then sort of being upset at the patient for not taking their insulin that they're needing, but not actually delving into what might be the reasons that this person doesn't take their insulin, which is actually they're homeless and they don't have a refrigerator. Mm. So why am I even offering some form of harm reduction that I'm doing because it's clinically the right choice? Um, But is it really the clinically the right choice for the patient where they are physically, mentally, and emotionally? Mm. So sort of... Um, looking at those questions.
1: So talk about the distribution of sterile needles and why this is a harm reduction approach. Right.
2: So um, it's a huge harm reduction approach. And I think if if we really are looking at people who use drugs um, and those drugs being probably the biggest ones that fall form in the, form the category of potentially being utilized by needles, that would be in stimulants and opiates. Um, for Especially for opiates, there, everyone is sort of on a continuum. Not everyone who uses, who has maybe doesn't even have opiate use disorder, but let's say uses opiates. Um, not all of them use with needles. A lot of people snort or ingest. Um, But many people, once they progress to needles, you're in a situation where it's kind of hard to combat that because the rise in concentration of the medication or the drug they're taking happens so quickly that they build a tolerance or a need for that quick rise. Um, And there are medications that help people who have opiate use disorder not need to inject with needles, but it's not necessarily We're never going to get to 100% with use being at a zero. And if we just kind of recognize that statistic that not everyone in the country is going to be able with buprenorphine and or methadone to stop use, um, what what do we do with that group of people? Well, we say, well, how can we keep them the most safe? And the way we could keep them the most safe is to make sure that they're not Reusing their needles and their works that you know the the items that they need to put get the drug into the form that they need, so if they need to kind of take a powdered form of heroin and put it into liquid form and then inject it there's works associated with that or instruments associated with that. How do we help them keep those sterile, keep them not reused so that they're not um, using using a non clean um, devices and injecting through that? typically what you see that people will get without these access to those needles is you have, you get HIV and really easily you get hepatitis C. Um, and so the real question is when you have something that really is happening, it would be great to deny that it really is happening in the U S that there's always going to be a population of people who inject, okay, great for us to deny it. But when it is really happening and people are contracting HIV and hepatitis C. We have an obligation, as you know, as a country, to say, "Oh, we've got to do whatever we can, not to increase the rates of those infectious diseases." Um, and what's also super important is, from what I know, and I'll give a shout out to the um, Southern Tier AIDS Program. Often, those places are the only safe place that. Um, that these, pe- these people have. So they've mm-hmm. often, um, you know, they're they're heavily, these are folks who are typically face a lot of stigma. Mm-hmm. People don't offer them services. When they get to go to a syringe exchange, and this is pre-COVID and hopefully soon post-COVID, they also might have a place to wash their clothes. Mm-hmm. They have a place where they can get a cup of coffee. They might have a place where they can actually get some snacks because most of these folks, when you see them, these are, like, the most vulnerable people in our community, some of the most vulnerable. I wouldn't say the most. Some of the most vulnerable community, and they deserve to be have at least a place that they can go to where they're treated with dignity and respect. And often, especially, I sort of got my start in this by offering service at the, um, or being contracted for services at staff, often um, this is, and this is well known. This is where they engage in services. This mm-hmm. is where they say, you know what, I really am having trouble. I need a doctor. And the folks that work at these, at these places can offer them, um, referrals into places where they might be able to find a doctor or get housing or get food. And without those, it's sort of like a, it's a haven or a place where people can really get what they need because no one else is offering it to them.
1: And we should point out that this is evidence-based work that really arose from during during the 90s with HIV. And um, I, I, I think I've shared on this program before that I was at Bentham Medical Center in New York where Don Desjardins was doing some of the leading research on this, looking at needle exchange to reduce the um, spread of HIV uh in new york city it was highly successful i also have a family member who was using heroin iv and we would talk about it um y- you know it's it's keeping that line of communication o- open which is i think why these centers are so important um and and i i, I remember saying to him don't shoot it snort it now You know, other family members probably would be very critical of me for doing that. But to me, it was a harm reduction. How do you reduce the likeliness of him being harmed? How do you reduce the likelihood that he's going to get HIV and hepatitis? And today he is on Suboxone and he is working and he has a family. And so um, it, it, it really can make a difference when you create an environment in which you're really looking at how do you reduce that harm and continue to try to support somebody who, um, you know, you love. These are our friends, our neighbors, our families. So um, Right, and, and often, like, the most amazing people you'll ever
2: meet in your lifetime. Yeah, yeah. You know, have survived. Many of the folks that, um, that I've met are people who have survived traumas in their lives that um, I can't even imagine surviving. And yet, so they're, they're, you know, they're really survivors, and then everywhere in the community people are just, you know, looking at the way they look, looking at the fact that they don't have, you know, whatever it is that that raises stigma in other people. I guess, you know, it, it, to me, a lot of these folks I'm just shocked and, pr- like, so. it's so amazing that they've been able to live through what a lot of them have had to live through
1: so i 'm talking with Dr. Justine Waldman, the Medical Director at Reach Medical, a, a nonprofit organization that 's really about harm reduction and ensuring that people have access to unstigmatized non stigmatized healthcare care services um, and, and Justine, I, I, there was a, a, a phrase that I, that I saw on email recently, and I think it was from Reach Medical. That I realize I don't really know what it is, and it's low threshold harm reduction. and I believe it was in relationship to medic- medication assisted treatment. What do we why are we saying low threshold harm reduction? What's that about?
2: I feel like that was I don't know if it's true, but I think that that was a term, I don't I learned that term probably from um, the AIDS Institute, I um, thing that yeah, AIDS Institute, which is, um, like a department within the Department of Health um, from our friends there. And um, I, I'll give another shout-out to the director of the AIDS Institute, which is Alan Clear, just an, an incredible person, um, incredible advocate.
0: Um,
2: so the the problem isn't necessarily, and I think a lot of people miss this point, um I think everyone thinks oh we just need to get more prescribers prescribing these medications. Mm-hmm. And and that is one level of problem, but it's not the whole problem. Um the the problem is the way in which prescribers are willing or not willing to give, especially um buprenorphine and or methadone out. So typically what's happened in the United States is the sense that um oh, you are you have opiate use disorder, I'm going to give you buprenorphine, I'm going to give you, um, you're going to come in every week mm-hmm. or every two weeks for urine drug screens. When I see any substance in your urine, I'm going to say, you're not following my plan of abstinence, and therefore I cannot prescribe to you anymore, mm-hmm. and you're going to, um, I'm going to have to have you leave um, services." Mm-hmm. I think that since the time that I've been involved, New York State has done a rapid switch around on that, and especially in OASIS, an organization, the New York State organization that certifies us, and that's a new thing for us, has made big strides away from saying that abstinence, counseling, all the things that sort of used to be parts of, traditional treatment, like mandatory um, counseling, mandatory this and that, um, have been sort of stripped away from what, um, uh, stripped away from what treatment looks like. Mm -hmm. I think it still is what it looks like in most other um, states. I think New York State, California, and a few other states are really on board with the idea that um, treatment needs to be getting buprenorphine out there because that's what saves lives Mm -hmm. and not Focusing on the idea that a patient needs to be abstinent in order to get this life saving medication. Mm.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the medication because um, the Catskill Addiction Coalition held its uh, annual community summit in January and we did it online and you were part of that. And in one of the uh, Zoom sessions, uh, we had 20 different sessions, I think. And in one of them, there was, and I think it was you, you um, were talking pretty passionately about why do we keep talking about the need to taper off of Suboxone and these medications.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm already angry. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that. I'm like, what? What are you saying? Why would we ever do that? Tell, yeah. Talk about that. I mean, so the, the science that uh, that's out there that, said that, well, first of all, there, I just want to give you one, one, one thing that I've learned is like the language, I think language in the U.S. is changing rapidly, right, around so many topics. But one of the things that's changed, which is new to me also, is the the naming around giving these medications for opiate use disorder keeps changing. It used to be opiate replacement therapy, and that was found to be too stigmatizing. Medication-assisted therapy also found to be like, what are we... Is that just the assistance? And now the terminology is M-O-U-D, at least that's what I understand, medication for opiate use disorder. So there are three medications, and basically when you look at what the World Health Organization suggests, it's that this is a long-term versus a lifelong medication for most people, Mm -hmm. that this is a chronic relapsing Potentially lifelong disease for most people, and that our goal is to keep them safe. Our goal isn't to have them, or to expect that the majority. And I think I'm I hope I'm saying this right. My guess is that the majority of the population doesn't get cured mm. of the disease. Mm. That it's a process that comes and goes. And that the safest thing we can do for patients is to have this medication at the ready, even if they decide themselves that they feel pretty safe without it, they're doing well, they've decided they're ready to wean off the medication. My ask of patients is that that's fine as long as we're staying in touch and that we're we're weaning you off extremely you know extremely slowly, making sure that you're feeling okay still and making sure that if things should change. And if, you know, if you start to have, um, you know, a craving for 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 use, then knowing that we're right here, ready to restart you on the medication.
1: So when you say withdrawing over a long period of time, I, I put that into perspective. What do you mean? I don't think I've actually done it because most of
2: my patients, I sort of try to keep on, but, um, you know, I think that what they've said is you could take off if a patient is on 60 milligrams and they want to wean, you might go to 12 milligrams a month for a while, then go to 8 milligrams or 10 milligrams at eight. you know, we're talking months if you're, yes. I think if you do it properly so that the patient isn't necessarily feeling the side effects. Mm-hmm. I think also that time allows for the patient to assess am I actually, is this actually working for me? Am I really, am I really in, I mean, I guess if you were to use the term like in remission, am I really in remission as much as that I is. thought it would? A lot of patients really, it's, 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 it's really interesting to talk to patients because most patients have, and I guess it's a sort of like, to me, sort of new terminology also, they've internalized the stigma. And so, when we in, when we um, get new patients and put them on buprenorphine, it seems as though all of them in their history, that the nurse takes the history, will say, "Oh, I only want to be on this for a short while. I just need it as a crutch, and then I'm going to get off of it." Yes,
1: and I I, I have to say that my family member, uh, who has substance use disorder and is on Suboxone, has relapsed every time he's tried he tries to self withdraw, and he has relapsed, and we've we're having have had conversations about doing doing it um, with uh, under the guidance of a a healthcare provider and to not be so eager to get off um, and to really take it slow. So that was that was a very helpful session. Well, I, we 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 only have you know about five minutes left, and I want to make sure that people understand the services that Reach Medical provides and the fact that. For some people who may be listening, even though you're based in Ithaca, that you do telehealth. And so you people can avail themselves of your services without being physically in Ithaca, correct? A hundred percent. a lot of that, um, we
2: see that as, you know, there have been some surprise, and maybe just a few, but some surprise things that have come out of, the epidemic or the pandemic that have been helpful and one of those things is that New York State now allows and SAMHSA and the, fed, and the feds allow for buprenorphine now to be prescribed with a telehealth visit um, that was never allowed before and the um, the payers or the insurers are now paying for telehealth visits at a rate that's equal to in-person. Without those two things, um, organizations have never been able to sustain or be able to offer services like this. So um, as long as those rules stay in place, we will continue, and we hope we are advocating for those rules to stay in place, Um, not because it's a who's us so much as it allows us, to see patients in ways that we've never been able to see them before. I mean, most of our patients had trouble just getting in for appointments because they didn't have access to a car.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so in general, even our local patients have trouble yes. getting in, um, getting a Medicaid cab where they need to. So this sort of alleviates that problem.
1: And And you also provide primary care services, right?
2: We provide primary care services, although... With time, you know, we've come to the conclusion that it's not – it doesn't really work to do primary care services, let's say, in Albany for – you know, for in Ithaca for a patient in Albany because then you yeah. really can't see them in person. Although we do and can, and it's very much a New York State um, measure to do tel, um, telehealth for um, hepatitis C, which is, you know, a, a, a disease process that's now very easily curable. The only thing that we really need to have is for patients to go to their local lab, um, find out if they have hepatitis C, get some other lab work, and then you can even do it as a one-shot deal, and then we can treat them almost right away.
1: And, and you really emphasize that on, on your website, that you provide services for hepatitis C, which people used to die from.
2: Oh, my gosh, hepatitis C is, like, our favorite thing. It's the one thing that we – we love hepatitis C. It's the one thing you can cure, you know. So, like, you have opiate use disorder and you have hepatitis C, and I know both of them feel stigmatizing. But guess what? In 12 weeks of, you know, for three months you take a medication, we wait another three months, and then we're, we're sure that there's no more of that hepatitis C hanging out in your bloodstream
1: and you're cured. I mean, what could be better? Yes, yes. So um, if somebody wanted to access your services, how would they do that?
2: They can give us a call at 607-273-7000, and we can set them up for an appointment.
1: And one more time on that?
2: 607-273-7000.
1: And you have a
2: website? And we have a website, I, I, it's so funny. I don't know her. Is it org? Is that her website? Uh, www.
1: I think I just I just uh, Google Reach Medical and I find it. It comes up.
2: <laughs> Can I just make one yes. comment, Diana? Yes. That, that I want to make is the scariest thing to me. And I, I forgot to make this comment: is if people remember and they know someone who overdosed, it's almost always. The, the time that someone is going to overdose is when they're abstaining. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's when they're going to overdose because, because not everyone, you know, we would never tell a cancer patient, um, listen, there's a 10% chance that you can cure this cancer by just thinking about it. And if I'm wrong, you know, you'll probably die. But we tell people there's, you know, people who there's a 10% chance that people can just abstain. But why are we telling, like, why are we advocating for people to abstain when only 10% of the population could possibly do it? And the people you're wrong about, you're increasing the chances that they're going to die because when people abstain for a long time and then are unable to do so and use again, their tolerance is super low and the carfentanil that's out there is super powerful. And now you have somebody, a family member, a loved one, who has been everyone's been urging to abstain. They're they're thinking that that's the right thing in their mind, and now they're dead.
1: Well, it's a great point. It's a a bit of a harsh one, but an important one to end on. Uh, I want to thank you, Justine, Dr. Justine Waldman, Medical Director of of Reach Medical. Thank you so much for all that you are doing. We're learning a lot from you. And, uh, yeah, thank you for being a great partner with the Catskills Addiction Coalition and for coming on to Health Center in the Catskills today. Thank you so, so much. All right. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of HealthCetera in the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to health Cetera's website and blog at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Diana Mason, Barbara Glickstein, and production assistant Kai Volsey.